Thank you so much. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 5, and we want to look at verses 21 through 26, anger, murder, and reconciliation. Well, uh, which one of these do you identify with? (laughs) Yeah, I'm afraid so. I'm afraid we probably all identify with all of them on one level or another, sadly. But uh, let's uh, ask the Lord to bless. Lord, we thank you for your word now and pray that you administer to our hearts as we study together. Help me to teach it accurately and clearly. Uh, Thank you for this uh, in-depth teaching from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, on how we should then live as those who are ultimately going to be uh, citizens in the kingdom. And we look forward to the kingdom to come, but even now I think uh, we as your people are to give a little taste of the kingdom in terms of how we live our lives. And so Lord, uh, encourage us, strengthen us, uh, convict us. Reprove us, whatever we need, as we work our way through the text here. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, we are in Matthew, and the theme is Christ the King. And we are in this section right here in chapters 5 through 7, the pronouncements of the king proving his judicial right to the throne, as seen in the wisdom of his kingdom teaching. And uh, as we are studying Matthew, we uh, note that Matthew presents uh, Jesus as the Messianic King. That's, as I say, the theme. And prophetically, history could be summarized in this way, I think. The King is coming. The King has come. The King is coming. Right? That's true. Uh, as we consider the Old Testament, the king is coming. The prophets uh, are saying this constantly. He's to be presented. He's coming. The king has come. Alas, he was rejected. Came into his own and his own received him not. What's the message now? Well, the king is still coming. There's a, there's a second coming. And this time he's coming to rule. So this is really prophetic history in a nutshell right there. A couple of more slides as far as the flow of thought that we have represented here in Matthew 4 and 5. Uh, repentance. Necessary to enter the kingdom. Repent. The kingdom's at hand. Then we have the Beatitudes, uh, descriptive of, of kingdom citizens who have repented. And salt and light, the disciples' influence and testimony in the world. And then we saw last week that Christ fulfills the law and the prophets, makes kingdom living possible. And with that, I want you to make this connection. I think you got it last week, but just to review, uh, Christ says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That has different layers. We unpacked them last week. But I think that certainly means, in terms of fulfilling, Christ came that the deeper essence of the law, the spiritual intention of the law, might be fulfilled in his people. And we see that as we come to the end of that first section in in Matthew 5.20 there, where he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness, that's the issue here, practical righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So, 
the point is, kingdom people are defined by true repentance and internal reality, which then demonstrates itself in righteousness. In this case, practical righteousness uh, and external reality. Now, the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, Matthew 5 through 7, is essentially a further unpacking, if you will, of the truth of Matthew 5.20. So it's pretty important that we nail this down. Everything builds on the righteousness Christ came to fulfill in the lives of his people as seen in 5.20. The theme of the remainder of the sermon, in essence, answers the question, how shall we then live as kingdom people? As those who are kingdom citizens headed for the kingdom, how should we then live? As believers living in the church age, we note the prominent New Testament emphasis is on the Spirit, who now lives inside of us. We are the temple of the living God. And we note that the fruit of the Spirit is really a kingdom emphasis, if you will. Because the new covenant and the kingdom go together. Really, the fruit of the Spirit could, in a sense, be called the fruit of the kingdom. Kingdom living is spirit-filled living, based on our new covenant relationship with God through Christ. So although we're not in the kingdom as yet, we have a little taste of it in the sense of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And as the fruit of the Spirit is on display, that's a little taste of kingdom living. Well, Matthew 5, 21 through 48 is often called the sixth, the sixth antithesis. Because all six sections begin with some variation of Christ saying, but I say to you. So just as a quick overview, what we're looking at in that section, uh, six sections, uh, six topics. Uh, the first one we're going to look at today, murder, anger. In uh, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Then adultery, Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Uh, divorce, Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Oaths, uh, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Vengeance, Matthew 5, 38 through 42. And love for enemies, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. These things all relate to spirit-filled, if you will, kingdom living. Well, what was the point didn't Israel already know about murder, adultery, divorce, etc.? Well, yes, they did. But the deeper teaching of Christ shows that the law has an internal dimension. The law is not merely to be externalized, but also internalized. And that's where the power of the Holy Spirit comes in. Uh, really, a, a life uh, led by the Spirit is really a matter of supernatural living, supernatural empowerment to live such a life. It's not merely about our actions, but also about our thoughts that lead to actions. Uh, the Jews kind of put the emphasis on just on external outward. You know, okay, you don't, I'm not a murderer. I haven't killed anybody. I mean, there's nobody laying in the street that I'm responsible for. Yeah, but what about your heart? What about your murderous heart that, that really would like to kill them, but you know you can't do it externally and get away with it? What about that? That's what Jesus is addressing. By the way, uh, this idea of living out kingdom ethics, uh, coming from within by the power of the Holy Spirit, is really new covenant stuff. It really is. 
The new covenant is all about the ministry of the spirit. The ministry of the spirit changing people from the inside out. It relates inherently to our inward thoughts and disposition. Back in the Old Testament, and ultimately this is to be fulfilled in relationship to Israel and the kingdom. We as the church partake of it even now in terms of the spiritual aspects of the new covenant. But ultimately awaits fulfillment, complete fulfillment in the kingdom. But notice Jeremiah 31, 33 says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. He's talking about the new covenant. I will put my law, note the word law there, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. If you are a Christian, you're saying, this is where I live now. The Spirit has done an amazing supernatural work of regeneration in my heart. And I'm now being processed where I am becoming more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in my heart. It's an inside-out dimension. Well, this is the aspect of the law that Jesus came to fulfill in a deeper sense in the lives of his people. In applying this internal aspect of the law, Jesus presents this deeper understanding based upon his prophetic authority. All the way through the Sermon on the Mount, there is a special emphasis on the fact that Jesus taught with unique authority and not as the scribes. Think about this for me. I am emphasizing this. I did last week and I am this morning again. Who would have the audacity to come along after the Jews had the law for 1,500 years? That's pretty established, right? The law is a pretty established thing. 1,500 years we've been living by this code. Who has the audacity to come along after 15 years of this? Moses. Gave, God gave the law through Moses. Who has the audacity now to come along after 1,500 years and say, Oh, by the way, let me tweak this a little bit for you. Let me enlighten you a little bit on the deeper reality of the law. Let me tell you that I have come to fulfill it in a deeper sense. Who in the world could possibly have this kind of authority? Well, only the Messiah, who is God in a human body, which is exactly who Jesus was. Moses was considered the greatest prophet in the history of Israel. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says in Deuteronomy 34.10, quote, But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses. Moses, the greatest prophet, said that God would in the future raise up another unique prophet who would speak the word of God with power and authority. Note this here in the book of Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. A great one. From your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So there's a unique, there's a unique person coming. He's going to be similar to me in in the sense of uh, the greatest and even greater ultimately. But Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19 continues. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So this coming prophet is really going to uniquely give uh, forth uh, 
new revelation, authoritatively so, as Moses did. Well, the Jews rightly considered this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 a messianic prophecy. Everybody understood that. In Acts 3, 22 and 23, Peter plainly said this was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the Messiah, ultimately fulfills perfectly the office of prophet, priest, and king. All in one person, which was unique. Uh, nobody ever fulfilled all three of these offices in the Old Testament. Maybe two of them, never three of them. But in Christ, all three are perfectly fulfilled. So Jesus uh, was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. But he was certainly a prophet par excellent on a level higher than any other. You see, Jesus not only spoke for God, he was God. This is the level of authority seen in him as he explains and brings to fulfillment a deeper dimension of the law than anything ever realized before. Well, in this sixfold emphasis in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, the very first thing, the very first thing that Christ dealt with was the issue of murder, which Jesus shows involves deeper heart issues as revealed in anger, contempt, and cursing. These are the heart issues really related to uh, the family sins of murder. You might call them the family sins of murder. Well, let's pick it up. Matthew 5, 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Of the judgment. The reference here is to the sixth commandment as stated in Exodus 20, 13, and also Deuteronomy 5, 17. Now, the Jews correctly understood that murder was forbidden by God and was liable to punishment. Following the fall of mankind, the very first recorded crime was a homicide in which Cain killed his brother Abel, as seen in Genesis 4. Ever since that time, the reality of murder has plagued the human race. When's the last time we had a murder in the human race? Well, probably about three seconds ago. I mean, it happens all the time, regularly. After the worldwide flood, even before the law of Moses was given, God laid down the rule of capital punishment for the sin of murder in relationship to the institution of human government. And we read about this in Genesis 9, 6, where God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Later, God incorporated the law of capital punishment for murder into the Mosaic law. Note the emphasis here is specifically in relationship to murder, premeditated murder. This is not about capital punishment legally carried out by a governmental agency, just warfare, accidental homicide, or self-defense. The law of Moses specifically forbade the case of premeditated murder. And note that someone committing murder was in danger of judgment, meaning they were then headed towards and facing judgment for what they had done. You're in trouble now. Judgment's coming. Note all the way through here, this language of in danger of is used throughout this context to show the party is guilty and is now 
facing judgment. Verse 22. Okay, we understand the sixth commandment. You should not murder. And if you do, you're in trouble with authorities. You're facing judgment. That's one level of understanding the law. But Christ says, I want to go a little deeper with you. Verse 22. But I say to you. That whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, note, the you referenced here in this context refers back to Jesus' disciples as seen in chapter 5, verse 1. Remember what it said there in, in 5.1? Seeing the multitudes, he went up unto a mountain. And then out of that, those multitudes, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So he's addressing his disciples. Therefore, this is essentially addressed to professing believers. Note throughout, as seen in verse 22, 23, and 24, that the person being sinned against is called a brother. Some think that the practice of Christians calling each other brother and sister goes back to Jesus' instruction and his training that his disciples address God as our father. Uh, God is our spiritual father, and we as his children are brothers and sisters. And in view here, therefore, are family issues. He's addressing it on that level. You say, well, I don't think this applies to us. Yeah, it does. You have heard, Jesus says, but I say, to you. There's the voice of authority. Because I'm going to tweak your thinking a little here. I know you got 1,500 years logged in here and you're really there, but I want to tweak your thinking a little. You have heard, but I say to you, is the formula throughout this whole section. Jesus was not saying what they had been told was wrong in and of itself. Rather that the external emphasis was merely incomplete. NIV Study Bible has a good note here. The contrast that Jesus sets up is not between the Old Testament and his teaching. He has just established the validity of the Old Testament law. He just, just, just did that. Rather, it's between externalistic interpretation of rabbinic tradition on the one hand and Jesus' correct interpretation of the law on the other, as the voice of authority, Christ now applies a deeper fulfillment of the law in relation to an internal application, which is the deeper intention of the law. Thus, he came to fulfill the law. And thus, in Christ, we have actually presented a higher standard than was found in the mere external emphasis of the law. Now, Christ didn't merely deal with outward externals as the scribes and Pharisees, but he took it deeper into the realm of dealing with heart issues behind outward actions. Moody Bible Commentary, Christ could do this because of his prophetic authority as the law's fulfiller. Indeed. Well, Christ here shows that at the root of murder are the issues of anger, contempt, and hatred. Murder is merely the outworking of these issues, which are all reflective of deeper heart issues. Murder is a spiritual problem. Starts in the heart. Now, to be human is to know anger, right? I mean, this is where he starts here. 
right? Verse uh, 22, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. To be human is to know anger. You know, I, I, I know anger. I, I, I can get angry. Uh, things happen, doesn't make me happy. Doesn't say, well, I'm glad, you know, uh, so-and-so got ripped off today. It just kind of thrills my soul, you know. It doesn't bother me a bit. No, it tends to make me angry. And there's a place for anger, as we will see, but there's also danger. Now, some struggle with anger more than others, but who in this life has never been angry with someone? Please raise, no, let's not go there. I submit to you that's a very rare find, and indeed, if someone claims this, you might want to check references to see how often they lie. Anger by itself is dangerous. When we get angry with someone, we are in dangerous territory, and we may even have grounds for anger where sin is involved. There is such a thing as a righteous indignation. I mean, Jesus got angry, righteously so, and yet there is danger here. Uh, You know, it says in the book of Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. I often jest that the first part is easy. Be angry. Uh, I I, I, I find it very easy to be obedient to that. Be angry. But the second part is not so easy. And do not sin. Even when anger is justified, as in the case of sin being involved, and, and I think sin should anger us. We shouldn't just be complacent. Uh, sin should, there should be a, a righteous indignation about sin. I mean, that's uh, where God's at. But we need to be careful. Uh, it needs to be handled in a very controlled way. And even so, we need to realize that anger can very quickly give way to sin. This is our weakness as fallen human beings. Just remember, sin is never far removed from anger. You're on very dangerous ground when you're angry. And I speak to myself first and foremost. There's a constant danger here. And because of this, Paul, under inspiration, counsels us not to let the sun go down on our wrath. Keep short accounts. Resolve it quickly. Don't let anger Simmer, because to do so is to give the devil an opportunity to blow it wide open. And when that happens, the devil has a field day. I remember a number, quite a few years ago, a brother got up one Sunday and said it had been a bad morning. He said it was like the devil knocked at the door and they they all got up and answered it. Well, the devil wants... You to give him an opportunity by not dealing with it immediately. He wants you to just sit on it overnight and let it fester until he knocks on the door in the morning and gets the best of you. We're weak here, and there is ever danger. Proverbs, book of wisdom, the beginning of strife is like releasing of water, therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Nip it in the bud. Don't let it even get started. The danger of anger is seen in many admonitions given to us in the New Testament. I mean, this is not how what is to govern our lives as, as Christians. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
James 1.20, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. You say, boy, I really got, I just blew up and I did something great for God. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. Usually I have to apologize after I have, you know, my anger gets the best of me. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I think there's also danger here because in our humanness, we tend to very readily justify our anger. We want to defend it then. (laughs) Sin sin leads to further sin. No Christ's words here. Whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. Uh, Also note, the words uh, without a cause here in in the King James are really not in the older manuscripts. The language here of in danger of judgment assumes the anger in view is wrong, which is why the person is in danger of judgment. And the judgment in context for anger here would seem to be accountability to the, the, the lower local court for acting out in a sinful way. The point is this anger isn't technically murder, but it's still sinful for which one is accountable. And in seed form, in embryo form, it's related to the ultimate sin of murder, as we will see. What Christ is illustrating is that there are degrees of sin related to the issue of murder. Don't think that just because you haven't actually physically murdered someone, you are innocent. There are related levels of related sin with corresponding consequences. Just being sinfully angry with someone puts you in danger of one level of judgment. That's the principle here. Or one level of discipline as God's children. But on the next more serious level is calling a brother Raka. Raka was an Aramaic term. And notice what uh, Christ says here. Uh, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother uh, shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Raka was an Aramaic term that uh, was a contemptuous insult. It was a term of abuse communicating scorn, disdain, or contempt. Now, the rabbis often mentioned it in their writings as a common term of abuse. Uh, Most believe it was equivalent to calling someone brainless, empty-headed, a blockhead, stupid, a numbskull, or an idiot. Now, I know none of you have ever done that. Sorry to say, it does slip out, doesn't it? What an idiot! Such an action is so serious that it puts one in danger of being brought up on slander or libel charges before the council, referring to the Supreme Court in Israel called the Sanhedrin. Thus, Christ illustrates just how serious this sin is. It's not a little thing. It deserves Supreme Court attention. He's making an emphasis here. Anger, serious, This is even more serious, requiring Supreme Court attention. A Jewish legend tells of a young rabbi named Simon ben Eliezer, who had just come from a session with his famous teacher. The young man felt especially proud about how he had handled himself before the teacher. 
He basked in his feelings of wisdom and holiness. He passed a man who was especially unattractive. When the man greeted Simon, the rabbi responded, You raka? How ugly you are. Are all the men of your town as ugly as you? And the man responded, That I don't know, but go tell the maker who created me how ugly is the creature he has made. Makes the point. To slander with disdain anyone made in the image of God is really a slander against God himself, their maker. You know, you really can't change your IQ. Uh, To call somebody brainless or an idiot or the equivalent is really a slam on their maker. Serious sin. Should be removed from our vocabulary. If we want to live in keeping with kingdom ethics. It's the most serious offense. Worthy of being brought up on charges before the Supreme Court. In terms of the illustration that Jesus is giving. Now it is noteworthy that the name devil means slander. Uh, Note this connection. Jesus said the devil was a murderer from the beginning. A liar and the father of it. Treacherous slander. The treacherous slander of disdain and murder I think, are in the same sin family. And then Jesus says, he gets even more serious. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Wow. Now that is most serious indeed. How should we understand this? We surely don't want to water it down or just kind of uh, skip over it like so many tend to do. It's like, wow, this is serious, but I don't know how to handle it. There's an emphasis here for a reason. The word fool here is the Greek word moros, from which we get our English word moron. In Matthew 7, 26, Jesus applied this very word to those who hear his words and yet do not do them. Thus, it denotes being foolish, albeit with a moral bent of rebellion that doesn't obey, that doesn't listen. Many commentators note that this Greek word is similar to the Hebrew word mora, which has connotations of apostasy, rebellion, and wickedness. In fact, many commentators that I read this week believe that when the Jews heard this word, they probably would have related it to this Hebrew word in terms of their background or or their current Aramaic language that many of them used. So uh, note uh, how close these are. Mora, Hebrew, the idea of a a damned rebel, it's a strong word, an apostate. Moros, Greek, fool. So uh, D.A. Carson, I think, has a pretty good take on this. Uh, He says, to a Greek, moros would suggest foolishness, senselessness. But to a speaker of Hebrew, and remember, Matthew is written to Jews. But to a speaker of Hebrew, the Greek word might call to mind Hebrew mora, which has overtones of moral apostasy, rebellion, and wickedness. It's not just one commentator saying this. This This is commonly what the scholars and the commentators tend to think here. So it seems like something like this is in view because Christ is building from the lesser to the greater offense. That's how it's building. To merely call someone foolish in a soft sense would seem to be almost equivalent 
or perhaps an even lesser insult than raka. But indeed, it seems to be more serious, so serious that it puts one in danger of hellfire. Therefore, I tend to take it that the idea here is that of calling the person a damned fool. A wicked fool that is on his way to hell. It has the sense of wishing them dead and that they would go straight to hell. You ever heard someone say that? You can go straight to hell. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. It is the essence of when someone says, God, D, you. Such a person is calling on God to consign the person to hell. Now, we really don't want to do that. We want to say, may you go straight to heaven. And the sooner the better. No, just kidding. (laughs) But this is the sentiment. And few things are more serious than this. This is hellfire serious, is what Jesus is saying. And he's addressing this to his disciples. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, this is the heart equivalent of being a murderer, as seen in verse 21. 1 John 3.15 says, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Unless, of course, he knows repentance. Equivalent to this is calling a brother a fool, which places one in danger of hellfire. In other words, both actual murder, verse 21, and calling someone a fool are both deserving of the punishment of hell. Revelation 21.8 says, Murders shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Here Christ says to those who call someone a fool that they are in danger of this same hellfire. And making damning statements with reference to hell toward a fellow brother is actually putting the person who does this in danger of hell themselves. The sense is that such an action is indicative of those who don't really know God. Now, the word translated here as hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna literally means valley of Hinnom, also called, uh, called Tophet, which was south of Jerusalem. Back in the Old Testament, Israel practiced disgusting, idolatrous rites that included child sacrifice here. Later, when King Josiah abolished these practices, he turned it into the city dump, where the fires burned continually and where the corpses of criminals were disposed of. As such, its smoldering fires became a fitting place to symbolize the punishment of an eternal hell. Perhaps Christ pointed over to the Valley of Hinnom, Uh, Gehenna said, this is what it will be like. Jesus, in effect, said those who wish people dead and in hell, as expressed in malicious language, are in danger of going there themselves. William MacDonald says, there is no mistaking the severity of our Savior's words. He teaches that anger contains the seeds of murder, that abusive language contains the spirit of murder, and that cursing language implies the very desire to murder. The progressive heightening of the crimes demand three degrees of punishment, the judgment, the counsel, and hellfire. I agree. No mistaking the plain sense of what Christ says. 1 John 3, 14 and 15. We know that we pass to death into life. What's, what's the defining marker here? Because we love the brethren. 
Not because we're wanting them to go to hell. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I think Jesus was saying that hateful speech that seeks to damn people is indicative of not really knowing God. Just as hate is not indicative of those who truly know God. This is not characteristic of true kingdom citizens. However, that is not to say that a true believer, to a degree, couldn't fall into the very serious sin of hatred or murder. It's not indicative of the believer's new nature or of his ongoing practice, but we still all have the flesh, and we can fall into any of the flesh sins mentioned in Galatians 5, which is why we are warned against them. You know uh, what Paul says there in Galatians. We'll all know in a moment, maybe. There we go. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you before, just as I also told you in time past, double emphasis, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. It is true that this will not habitually define the believer's practice. But it is also true that just a few verses before this, in verse 16, Paul said, Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Implying that if you don't walk in the Spirit, you may well fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Here's the problem, brothers and sisters. As a believer, we still have the flesh. Praise God, we have the Holy Spirit. We know God is our Father, and, and there's a, a, a ruling reality, there's a, a working reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we still have the flesh, and we can still commit the works of the flesh. Don't think you can't. Peter says this, what, how far are you going to go with this? I mean, in light of John, how far are you going? Well, Peter, how far are you going with this? Peter says to the saints here, let none of you suffer as a murderer. Peter, there's no problem here. We never do that. We're all saints here. Uh, Peter says, yeah, saints, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief or an evildoer. This is not, to, this is not what you're to be about. Well, why did Peter exhort these believers not to be guilty of murder and thereby suffer the consequences? Answer, because it is potentially possible that a believer could do so. Doesn't make any sense. Otherwise, Peter, why are you wasting ink? It's not even an issue. Yeah, it is. Note Christ's words very carefully. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. To be in danger of indicates this is the required penalty and the guilty party that the guilty party would be facing without some kind of intervention. When I consider the whole counsel of God, which we always ought to do, I take Jesus to be saying this is indicative of unbelievers who are headed to hell if they don't repent. However, if a believer should fall into such a sin, they should realize this is so serious that it normally places one in danger of hellfire. 
But of course, as believers, we know that Christ died for this sin also. Apart from the intervening blood of Jesus, we should go to hell for such a sin. Thus, Jesus is emphasizing the gravity of murderous sin in the heart, which has application even for his disciples. The point is, we need to realize just how very serious hatred in the heart really is. In hatred, the seeds of, in hatred are the seeds of murder, which is indicative of those who are not saved. This is not to define Christ's kingdom people. Love, not hatred, is the defining reality for Christ's people. Not that we can't ever hate, we still have the flesh. There's a serious, serious warning here. Remember Moses? You know, we talked about him earlier. I'm sure you remember. He was one of the most godly leaders in the history of Israel. As I said earlier, prior to Christ, he was considered to be their greatest prophet. Well, Moses at at one point let his flesh temper, the seed of murder in effect, get the best of him. You recall it, right? In Numbers 20 verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! I'm mad! I'm really mad! You rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then he struck it. Rebels is the Hebrew word mora, which many think corresponds to the word fool in the minds of the Jewish people in Matthew 5.22. It is the idea of perverse rebels worthy of damnation, apostates on your way to hell. Moses, contrary to what God told him to do, called the people rebels and struck the rock twice instead of talking to it as instructed by God. This was so serious that Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land, what he had been looking forward to his whole life. Self-control over our physical actions is good, but the Lord wants us to control our thoughts, our attitudes, and our words as well. Behind our actions is the inward reality of the heart. Murder starts with hatred, and hatred is often expressed in killer words, which can then lead to killer actions. Proverbs says this, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Verse 23, therefore, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. To show you all the more that Christ has disciples in view, the thought from verse 22 continues on. The, the therefore of verse 23 denotes a continuation of thought. Verses 21 and 22 denote a hate problem in the heart that expresses itself in various ways. Verses 23 and 24 address how to get right after such a sin has been committed. Perhaps this person has a guilty conscience. Notice he's he's not bringing a gift. Okay, verse 22 has kind of happened in my life. Let's go to church. In this case, context the temple. Perhaps this person has a guilty conscience knowing they have wronged their brother by way of sinful anger, 
contemptuous insult, or malicious cursing. And therefore has brought a little, if you will, conscience money. Or in this case, a little conscience offering. A little conscience gift. To try and soothe their conscience. Christ's audience was Jewish and pre-cross while the temple was still standing. So he speaks to them on that level. In that context. A person has come to the temple with an offering seeking divine forgiveness. They know they've been out of line. As he stands there waiting for his turn when the priest can attend to him. He then remembers that he has wronged someone. In the sense of the heart sins, the murderous type family sins brought out in verse 22. Christ says, here's how you handle this. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Is this not a challenging verse? Oh yeah. Christ is saying before you can really worship God in an acceptable manner, you first have to get right with your brother. First priority is to get things right with your brother. Even a higher priority than the offering. You say, well, we're going to take up the offering. Now you say, well, I, I got to leave. Yeah, yeah, so many say that. I'm just kidding. But I have to leave because I got to go get right. Ed Glasscock says, Worship of God is not accepted until reconciliation has been achieved with brothers with whom some offense has broken a relationship. You know, it's kingdom. And we're all looking forward to the kingdom. But uh, so many really don't want to start the kingdom living just yet. You know, people would generally much rather bring some ritualistic offering than, than get right with an offended brother. I mean, this is really humbling what Jesus is asking us to do. I mean, this shows... True repentance, in which ego bites the dust. I mean, making a quiet offering is no big deal. Okay, everything's fine now. But eating humble pie and crawling back to a wrong brother in repentance, now that, my friends, is challenging. Noted is the offender who is to take the initiative. They are to obey their conscience. They know they have done wrong. They know this person has this against them. There is a rift in the relationship. They are to make the first move. And this action of going back to first be reconciled could have involved some real effort. Think about this. Here they are in Jerusalem at the temple. Imagine the brother you've offended lives way up in Galilee. Good night. I gotta leave this here and I gotta go back up there into Galilee, all the way up there, three days' journey. And then I gotta get right with the brother. And then I gotta make the three days' journey back here. And now I can offer the gift. It's gonna involve a real commitment. Christ says, leave the temple and your offering and do whatever it takes to reconcile with your brother. This is top priority. This is first step in getting right with God. It's getting right with your brother first. By the way, if you have been wronged, sometimes you just have to wait for God to work in the other person's heart until they're humbled enough to come to you and seek reconciliation. Now, we should always have the spirit of forgiveness, never the spirit of bitterness, always wishing the other person well, always being ready to forgive. 
But reconciliation in this case depends on the offender taking the initiative. First, we get right with our brother or sister, and then we can worship in spirit and in truth. Now, if we won't get right, there's going to be an ongoing wall between us and God. John Phillips summarizes, The moral is simple. We are to get right with those we have wronged, those who have something against us, those with whom we have been angry. Reconciliation is so important that Jesus said it must even take precedence over our worship of God. Wow, what takes precedence over worship? (laughs) Not too many things, but this is one. Now we see this principle emphasized every time we have communion, whether we realize it or not, and we should. The Lord says we are to regularly be remembering him for what he did for us. What he did for us in, yes, personal salvation, but it's bigger than us. We're part now of a forever family. And and we are to remember this as we partake of communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes it very clear that before we can partake of communion in a worthy manner, we must first be right with our brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He's talking about communion in context. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He's talking about the body of Christ. That's the context here. And he says, because they weren't doing this, for this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That is, they've died. In effect, many at Corinth were violating the Lord's principle here in Matthew 5, 23, 24. They were not right with each other, and yet insisting on approaching the Lord's table in worship. Therefore, God disciplined them with sickness and even death. It's a serious matter before God. William MacDonald says, God receives no worship from a believer who is not on speaking terms with another. That's interesting. Someone once told me that for years they had a problem with another person in our church. I know that's hard to believe here at Southview. But they told me that they had learned to just stay away from this other person. They said, this person's on one side of the church and and I stay on the other side of the church. Well, in dismay, I expressed it. I just could not understand how that was possible. Not for spirit-filled Christians. Well, as time went along, some serious discipline ensued. And let me tell you, it wasn't pretty. If you are a kingdom citizen, you can't live this way without disciplinary consequences. Just memorize Hebrews chapter 12. True, God-honoring worship starts with being right with the family of God. I know of a case where a brother seriously wronged another believer. And to this day, the errant brother... This has nothing to do with me personally, but I know of this situation. And I guess I should say, you know, it's not that I haven't been involved in this situation, but it's, it's not a situation in our church. But anyway, to this day, the errant brother defends himself and has not gotten right. Even though many people have gone to this brother and said, hey, this is not right. I've often said that in this case, Repentance runs through the offended party. 
And what I mean is the sense of what Jesus is saying here. Evidence of true repentance is when the guilty party humbles themselves and first and foremost seeks to get right with the person they have sinned against. Then God can bless. Then restored worship of God can take place. Believers guilty of of the family sins, if you will, the family sins of, of murder, as seen in verse 22, need to deal with it first by being reconciled to their brother. Only then can God bless. How's that for a deeper understanding of the law? Oh, I thought it was just a good enough. I didn't kill the guy. Never mind. I cursed him. Never mind. I, I wish he'd go to hell. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Not as kingdom citizens. I want you to realize I'm presenting a deeper understanding of the law. This is how you should live as kingdom citizens. Verse 25, 26. The flow of the thought continues. Agree with your adversary quickly. While you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, when Christ says that, you know, he's, he's driving a stake down, making an emphasis. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. The, the smallest coin in the Roman Empire. Now he's talking in, in parable terms here. In parabolic form, Christ is laying down yet another related principle. And that is, when you have done something wrong, as illustrated in verse 22, then deal with it quickly and preemptively, instead of just sitting on it. The picture here is that a person has wronged someone, here called an adversary, and by the way, the quickest way to make an adversary is to wrong them. In Christ's day, under Roman law, if someone didn't pay a debt they owed, they could be brought before a judge. And the judge would then order them to be thrown in prison until the debt was paid. This was called debtor's prison. People, even God's people, are often very reluctant to admit guilt. I mean, I kind of see that in myself. Don't you ever see that in yourself? You know? The wife and I have a little problem. Let's put it a different way. I have a little problem, and the wife recognizes it. (laughs) It takes me a little while sometimes to get there. You know, I think it's, it's kind of your problem. It's not so much my problem. I think it's largely your problem. Maybe a little my problem. <laughs> We're often very reluctant to admit guilt. And we still got the flesh. And the flesh never wants to give in anything. Again, our ego consistently seems to be in the mix. You know, it's going to be nice we get to heaven. No egos. See, where's the ego? <laughs> it's not here. In the form of this parable, Christ is saying, if you are wrong, be quick to admit it and make things right. If you remain unrepentant, things are only going to get worse. You cannot just wait, wait this out and think the consequences are just going to eventually go away. And that is so common. Boy, I really was wrong. Boy, I'm just going to wait this out. It'll go away eventually. Christ said, no, it won't. No, it won't. 
Not in the case where you have a clear adversary that you have clearly wronged and you clearly need to get right with them. Now realize there's all kinds of situations in life and and you can't do anything about many situations because it isn't your problem. There are those situations that just, just happen. Romans 12. Help. Thank you. <laughs> Bless you. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, it's not always possible, but if it is possible, as much as depends on you, you can't help what the other person does. But as much as it depends on you, Live peaceably with with everybody, with all men. You can't help what other people do, but you are responsible for your own actions. And that's what we're talking about here. In this illustration that Christ is giving, the person clearly knows they have wronged a brother. They clearly know what they should do to get right. The onus is on them. In this case, the uh, offending person needs to move on it. They need to take the initiative to get right and not put it off. By the way, a footnote here. The Roman Catholic theology bases uh, the concept, uh, their their wrong teaching on purgatory, on these verses here in Matthew 5, 25 and 26. They believe that in the afterlife, people can finish paying for their sins through a, a suffering experience in purgatory. The problem is the Bible doesn't teach this. You know what the Bible teaches? Jesus said, it is finished. He paid it all. To say otherwise amounts to a work salvation and not salvation purely by grace, what Christ did on the cross through faith. The Bible is clear. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, let's make some application of the principle laid out by Christ here in Matthew 5. 25 and 26. The unbeliever is guilty. I'm talking the application now. The unbeliever is guilty and on the way to judgment day to face the judge. Who happens to be the holy God of the universe. The most sensible thing to do is to settle out of court. So to speak. And get right with God through repentance and faith. And God invites the sinner to do such. Isaiah 1, 18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Boy, this is a deal. This is a grace deal. Let's be reasonable about this. You're in big trouble with me. But I'm offering a way out. You can settle out of court before judgment day. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money, no, no means. Come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk. Without money, without price. It's grace. It's free. You're invited to come. You need to get right because you say, well, I'm going to put it off. I'm going to put it off. I'm going to, put, uh, you know, I'm going to wait till I'm before the judge. Too late. It's appointed unto men once to die. After this, the judgment. If you don't settle, quote unquote, out of court before you face God on judgment day with all your sins, you are in eternal trouble. Now let me make application in relationship to a believer. And really, believers are the real target here of Christ's teaching in this context. As believers, when we get off track and things are not right between us and a fellow believer, what should we do? Don't just put it off. We should realize that uh, we too are headed for judgment. 
disciplinary judgment, not, not a penal judgment in the sense of our sins have been paid for by Christ once for all. Well, he is our father, and this is a family issue. That's been, sol- that's been settled. But we are headed for judgment, disciplinary judgment, and beyond that, the judgment seat of Christ. We too should, if, as you will, the language, settle out of court, so to speak, and get right with each other and thereby with God. John Phillips says, Paul mentioned the judgment seat of Christ in the same breath as the terror of the Lord. Note uh, Paul's language here, 1 Corinthians 11. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we get right with God in terms of how we're treating each other in the body of Christ, we would not be disciplined. But when we are judged, we are chastened, that is disciplined by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And James says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. How serious is this teaching of Christ? Let me illustrate. This is shared by uh, Dr. Ronald Bigalke. And he says, one of the worst atrocities in, the, in world history was in 1994, the 1994 genocide against the, the Tutsi people in the small central country of Rwanda. Some of you will remember this. Others of you were not born yet. But anyway, at least 800,000 or more people were massacred by thousands of Hutus in 100 days. You see, Rwanda was approximately 90% Christian. Christian. At the time, and the notion that such mass violence would ever occur was unthinkable. This was a Christian nation. After all, the contributing factor to the genocide was rampant tribalism. Rwanda has two primary ethnic groups, Hutu. They were the farmers, and the, uh, the Tutsi uh, were cattle farmers. So you got the farmers and the cattle farmers. Trouble began when these groups began referring to themselves ethnically and tribally rather than as Rwandans. The country became divided with each group dehumanizing the other. Hatred toward one another became acceptable. And that animosity eventually manifested itself brutally. This is most serious. Kingdom citizens are to take Christ's teaching to heart. Be very careful of any hateful thing going on in your heart. Not only is murder wrong, so also is hatred. Hatred is murder in seed form. And when we have done wrong as followers of Christ, we should seek reconciliation as quickly as possible. Our relationship with each other is intertwined with our relationship with God. To be right with God, we have to be right with each other. This is God honoring and keeping and in keeping with kingdom ethics. Well, in this matter of kingdom living, the issue of anger and hatred is the first thing dealt with at length by Christ in terms of unpacking kingdom righteousness. In the Bible, the very first sin, specifically identified as sin, is found in Genesis 4, 6, and 7. And there we read what God said to Cain. Genesis uh, 4, 6, and 7. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Anger. And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not, 
well, sin lies at the door and it's desirous for you, but you should rule over it. Janie Cheney writes, and I love that name, Janie Cheney. She says, God seems to be offering a choice to Cain. In striking terms, sin is crouching at the door. Not knocking like an honest man, not picking the lock, not peeking through the keyhole. The image is that of a wild beast ready to spring. It wants to eat you alive, Cain. Swallow you whole. But where is the beast? Outside or inside? Outside, we usually think, sin is trying to get in to devour us. But knowing what we do about ourselves in human history since the fall, the metaphor works better the other way. Sin is trying to get out, panting for the chance to wreak havoc. Will you allow this inner beast to overpower you? Or will you exercise some control over your words and actions? Sin resides in our hearts and won't be eradicated in this life. But will we be its master or its meat? Great quote. Christ came to fulfill the law so that by the power of the Spirit, we might live out the Spirit of it. The key is dependence upon God. As Paul said, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, including thought control and attitude control. This truly is kingdom living. God help us as his children to live accordingly. Let's stand and have our concluding song.